We're so thankful that the Lord has blessed us with, uh, with Daniel to lead us, but we're, we're thankful that the Lord has filled in around him many others who, who can help us in that. And uh, we give thanks to God for Jeff and everybody else who, who does that week in and week out. Uh, and I'll just say with that, pray for Daniel, pray for uh, many. As you can see, the many seats are empty that are normally filled this morning. And we have uh, quite a few people out uh, today. As you, you know, uh, sickness is spreading through the community and we're no different here. And so uh, be in prayer for those who are out. Pray for God's blessing and, and protection and for his healing. Uh, and pray, most importantly, through all of this, uh, that, that we as a church, that we as a community, that we as a nation would be drawn to the Lord through this. Don't ever miss that. Don't ever miss the fact that when we go through things like this, the Lord is, the Lord is doing something. The Lord is teaching us something. And uh, so often we miss that. We look at only the physical. And, and we talk about masks and we talk about vaccines and we talk about spreading things and all of that and, and whatever with that, wherever you are and, and all of that. But, but make no mistake, the sovereign hand of God is governing, governing the affairs of, of mankind. And God is governing the, the virus. And, and so he, he has a purpose for it. And, and at least, in part, uh, the purpose is that we might repent of sin and turn to him. And so, you just got a pre-message. So now to the message. Let's, let's move on now and, and seriously do remember uh, those in our community and those in our church who are sick right now. But let's go to Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I started a couple weeks ago. It's been a couple weeks since I preached. Uh, we were out of town, and then we had Barry here last week, but we started uh, just taking some time to think about our mission statement again. Uh, we're not going to spend a great am amount of uh, time, a great, great number of weeks on this, but I wanted to spend a couple weeks just coming back and r remembering what we're here for. What, what is the purpose of Union Baptist Church? And uh, we, we seek to do this uh, occasionally uh, so that we don't lose sight of that. Uh, the mission statement is on our bulletin, the mission statement's on our wall, uh, but really, as so many things like that, we, we want it to be something that is actually true about us. You know, companies and industries and people can come up with neat-sounding mission statements, but, but a lot of times what is said by the company uh, is not really the reality that exists uh, within that. And so we're not a company, we are, we are an organization, though, as the Church of Jesus Christ, and, and we want to have mission, we want to have purpose, uh, and we want to make sure that it isn't something we just stick on logos and that we stick on the wall uh, or on our bulletin. We, we want it to be something that is a, a genuine marker of this body of Christ. And so you know our, our mission statement, which is that we exist as Union Baptist Church to glorify God by growing disciples of Jesus Christ in community. And uh, so we want to talk about that a little bit this morning, and I'm going to look at Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So as we just think about our, our mission statement, uh, we, we say, first of all, we exist for the glory of God. That's the overarching purpose, not only of our church, but that is the overarching purpose of your life. Everything that you do should be for the glory of God. That's true. That's true for those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. We are all created. We exist for God's glory. That's, that's why we're here. But certainly for us as believers, that ought to take center stage. It ought to take priority in our life. And it, and it isn't just one priority among many. It should be the preeminent desire of our heart. So, yes, we can think, I want to make money. I have to work. I want to get married. I want to have children. I want to find the right career. Oh, yeah, and I'd like to glorify God. That, that should not be how it is. Instead, it ought to be that I want to glorify God more than I want to live. 
That, that really should be the heartbeat of a true believer. I want to glorify God, not as one among many equal desires, but I want to glorify God more than I even want to live. It should be a preeminent desire in our heart. And, and what we need to understand as well, that glorifying God is not just a religious or church activity tacked onto our lives, but should be the aim of every activity of our life. This is this is where we go wrong so often is that we sort of divide our life out and we say there's work life, there's family life, and oh yeah, there's this religious spiritual component over here and it's one among many. But, but truly to, to have this desire as sort of overarching over everything in your life means that when I'm at work, I want to work for the glory of God. When I'm interacting in my family, if I'm a husband or wife or mom or dad or a child, I want to enter into that environment for the purpose of glorifying God in my family. And when I'm in church, I want to do that as well for the glory of God. Glorifying God is, is the umbrella over every dimension of our life. If you're a believer, the Latin phrase that has come to be... Uh, sort of common in, in some circles, quorum Deo, uh, which means before the face of God, should be the way that we think about our life. Quorum Deo, before the face of God. Everything that you do is before the face of God. You're not before the face of God only when you're here at church. I hope you know that. You're before the face of God when you're talking with your wife and interacting with your wife and children. You're before the face of God when you're at work and when you're, you're talking with the people with, with whom you work. Uh, you're before the face of God all the time and all the time you should be thinking in this moment with God watching me with his face with his eyes upon me I want to live for his glory I want to do what is pleasing to him we exist for the glory of God we want to be a church and and be individuals both so so both individual and corporately who are here to glorify God how do we do that well there are many ways that we glorify God, but especially as an organization, as a church, one of the chief ways that we glorify God is by growing disciples of Jesus Christ. That's one of the, the key ways that, that we do that. This means that we glorify God through being and becoming like Jesus. That's, that's the purpose of discipleship, and we talked that, about that a couple weeks ago, that, that we're disciples of Jesus Christ and what that means uh, it means that we, that we give up our lives, that, that we deny ourselves, that we take up our cross and that we follow him. And, and in doing so, we, we become like him. We take on his teaching. We take on what, what he calls us to be. And so this is one of the chief ways that we glorify God individually is as we follow Christ, as we put away our sin and we become more and more like Jesus. That, that brings glory to God. This work of being and becoming like Jesus, it really occurs through a lifetime process of change and growth. None of us is fully like Jesus Christ. None of us is without sin. None of us is perfectly holy. We are all engaged in a lifelong process the Bible refers to as sanctification, and that process involves us putting away our sin and putting on Christ, putting off the old man, putting on the new man. This is a hard process. It's pictured as a death. In fact, in the Bible, I just quoted earlier what Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Uh, Jesus calls us to a life of laying, laying down our own desires, putting to death the things that we desire and the things that we want in order that we might follow him. Paul, the apostle uh, says it in, in, similar, in a similar way. He says that we are to put to death the deeds of your flesh. And so as I reflect Jesus more and more through this process of change and growth, I, I bring more and more glory to God. But this call to discipleship is not exclusively personal. It's not just about you following Jesus and you becoming more like Jesus. It's why we're part of a corporate body. We exist not only for ourselves to grow more in the image of Christ, but that we might help others grow more into the image of Christ. If discipleship is personally becoming more like Jesus, then listen to this, we will naturally become those who disciple others. Since guess what? 
Jesus discipled other people. You know, Jesus came and one of the things that he did was was choose disciples and he poured his life into them and taught them so that they could grow and mature. Well, if we are personally becoming like Jesus, then part of becoming like Jesus is that I become others oriented. It's not just about me with my blinders on here saying it's my personal life and that's it. No, no, I, I need to be concerned with other people growing and becoming like Jesus as well, because Jesus came about other people growing and becoming like him. But if that's not a strong enough argument for us, <clears throat> then we have the command given to the church, the Great Commission. Go into all the world and what? Make disciples. Make disciples. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's one of the ways that we know that this this command was not just given to those first apostles because Jesus says that he is going to personally be with his people till the end of the age. That this work of going to the nations, this work of proclaiming Christ, this, this work of making disciples is going to continue to the end of the age. The disciples, those first apostles, did not continue to the end of the age. We are here as disciples of Jesus Christ with this commission to go into all the world and make disciples. Go into Hancock County where we are and make disciples of Jesus Christ. That means that we as a church, if we want to glorify God, yes, we need to personally be pursuing the Lord and becoming like Jesus, but we also need to be concerned that other people are coming to know Christ and that other people are then growing in their Christ-likeness. We are commanded to make disciples. Well, we want to go beyond this morning simply stating the fact of the matter that we're commanded to make disciples. And let's think about practically at least one important way that that happens. And that is namely, as this text says here in Colossians 3.16, that we are to admonish one another. And so here's sort of the, the big idea or the, the main point of of our sermon, and I think part of this text here is that my personal discipleship and my discipling of others involves participation in a community of believers in which I am willing both to have corrected and to correct any desires, thinking, or behavior that is not like Jesus. Now, that's a mouthful. And Jeffrey encouraged you to get a bulletin. I hope you do have a bulletin. It is, is on the back of our bulletin. So you can look there and read through that again. Uh, but, but my personal discipleship and discipling others, it means that I must participate in a community of believers where they, I can be corrected and I can help correct or admonish other people. You see in the text this morning, let the word of Christ, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So this work of making disciples, Paul says this is something that you are to do, Colossian church. You are to be teaching one another and also admonishing one another. And there is a purpose here that we'll talk about here uh, that, that, that we are to become like Christ. But we are to teach and ad admonish. We're commanded to admonish. That word in, in the New Testament conveys the idea, really, of even correcting. Uh, it's a concept in, in the New Testament. It's, it's kind of a concept that doesn't have necessarily an exact English word equivalent, uh, but it's been translated uh, and used often in the New Testament. It's translated different times as teach, as warn, uh, and as admonish as it is in, in our present uh, text. Uh, A.T. Robertson, a, a Greek scholar, said that this word really means to put sense into. To put sense into. You've got to do that with your kids sometimes, don't you? I, I think that helps us kind of get, get an idea. Sometimes they don't have sense, right? And you need to talk to them. And you've taught them. You, you, all growing up, you've taught them about right and wrong, and you've given them instructions. But then sometimes they're not really heeding that instruction, and you've got to put sense into them. You've got to do some correcting. You've got to do some admonition or some, uh, some exhortation. And so, in short, we could say 
uh, that this, ha- I, uh, this word has the idea of giving instruction, sort of teaching, but particularly it assumes that something is wrong. There, there's a needed correction. So we, we've gone over this. We've talked about this. This was the right way. But you see here, you didn't really do this the right way. And so there now needs to be an admonition. It, it's teaching again, but it's teaching with a, you did it wrong this way. Let's, let's come back and correct it. Let's do it the right way. Jay Adams says of this word, it, it always implies a problem. And it presupposes an obstacle that must be overcome. Something is wrong in the life of the one who is confronted. This kind of admonition, he says, arises out of a condition in a Christian that God wants to change. Well, isn't that interesting? That's what we've been talking about, that we exist to glorify God by being disciples. That is this process of growth and change, of becoming more like Jesus Christ. And what Paul is now telling us here in Colossians 3.16 is that part of that process sometimes is that we need to maybe admonish other people, correct other people when they are not becoming like Jesus or when there's some discrepancy there. And sometimes we need to be willing, all of us, myself included, to receive correction, to receive admonition so that we can change and become more like Jesus. If I am a disciple, that is, if I am a person who is changing to become like Jesus, and if I am making disciples, that is, I'm a, a, a people who need to change in, in order to be like Jesus, then admonition is essential. Admonition is essential. The Bible teaches that this kind of admonition is really part of the ordinary life in, in the church. So Paul saw his ministry as involving more than just import, imparting biblical knowledge. You could turn over to Colossians 1.28. This is what Paul says in Colossians 1.28. He says, Him we proclaim, talking about Christ, we proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So do you see this? He said, we proclaim Christ And he says, we warn everyone. It's the same word. We admonish everyone. We correct everyone and teaching with all wisdom. And we do this, he says, for the purpose of that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, I'm here to to lead people to be disciples of Jesus Christ. That involves my proclamation of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. But it also involves me coming back to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and, and warning them and admonishing them so that they may become mature in Christ. For Paul, the end of the game was not just to get somebody to sign a card and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. That was not the end of the game. That was not the end of his goal and purpose. Well, now I've been to Corinth and I preach the gospel. People have believed I can go and move on to some other city and just never think about the Corinthians again. No, what do we find? We find him writing letters and admonishing and warning and continuing to teach and instruct the Corinthians about ways that they weren't like Jesus. Why was he doing that? Because he saw that he wanted to present them as mature in Christ and they weren't there yet. They were disciples. They had put their faith in Jesus Christ, but they had not yet become mature. There were still areas of sin in their life. And so Paul's saying, I warned them. I admonished them. I correct them. Why is that needed? Well, to the purpose, to the end, that that he would present everyone mature in Christ. In other words, Paul sees the goal of maturity in Christ as being reached through the ordinary means of teaching and correction. He's saying, I'm doing this. You can look again at Colossians 1.28. I'm doing this. I'm proclaiming Christ and I'm warning and teaching so that with the purpose that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So if we're going to get to maturity in Christ, Paul sees a necessary part of that as warning and teaching and correction. Do you get that? Is you want to become mature in Christ, you want to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, we all need, myself included, we all need teaching, but we also need warning 
and correction. We need admonition. And this is not only the work of pastors. Some of you might say, well, that was Paul's ministry as a missionary or pastor-like uh, person. But, but the New Testament is clear that this is something that we should all do. This teaching and this warning and this admonishing is a work not of only of pastors, but of every New Testament believer. Again, let's go back to our text. Colossians 3, 16 through 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Who's he writing to? The Colossian church. You all let, let the word of Christ just soak in it, bathe in it. Let, let, it, let it so consume you so that then when the word of Christ is dwelling richly in you, that you may then be able to teach and admonish one another. This is not Paul writing in Timothy or Titus to pastors, right? We, we understand that. In Timothy and Titus, he's writing to those who are pastors. He's giving specific instruction to pastors. To this letter to the Colossians, this is to the Colossian church, to, to church members, to ordinary believers. And he's saying, this is what you need to do. You need to let the word of Christ dwell in you so richly that it's overflowing and that you are then able to teach one another, that you are able then also, he says here, to admonish one another in all wisdom. This work, is not just a work of pastors, but it is a work of every New Testament believer. We are responsible to teach and also to admonish one another. Every believer really is, is called to exercise watch care. That, that word's sort of an old word, isn't it? I, I grew up in church, and you would hear that sometimes. They come under the watch care of the church. One passage that I think points to that is Hebrews 12, 15. You remember that we, we talked about this when we went through the book of Hebrews, but Hebrews 12, 15 says this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. You, you hear that word, see to it. Again, the writer of Hebrews is writing to the church. And he's saying, this is a plural noun here, uh, really a participle, but he's saying, you all see to it. And that word see to it is actually the word that is translated often overseer, which is one of the titles of a pastor. But he here isn't talking to pastors. He's talking to the church. And he's saying, you all oversee it. It, it, the, the word means to, to sort of have watch care, a, a careful watch over one another. And that's what he's calling us to. He, he's calling all of us then, in a sense, to sort of the work that we typically think of pastors doing, watching over one another. We are all to be part of that work. See to it, you all, see to it, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up. So that's an obligation that God would give to you. God is speaking to you in, in Hebrews 12, 15. And he's saying, you all see to it that this doesn't happen. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness uh, springs up in anyone's heart. And see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. That is a work, that is a command of God for you. Not just for Pastors, I'm included in it, but you're included in it as well. And we even have this as part of our church covenant. If you're a member in our church, part of our church covenant, which is the pledge that you make as, as a believer in this church, a member of this church, is we further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love. Watch over one another. You have that responsibility. If you're a member, if you're a New Testament believer, you have that responsibility to help watch over one another. And guess what? You might think, I don't really feel confident for this work. I don't really feel like that's something I'm trained to do or something that I could do. But, but listen to what Romans 15, 14 says. Paul writing to uh, the, the, the believers there, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Guess what word that is? You might, you might be able to guess it. It's the same word, admonish. You are able. He said, you're filled. Believers, New Testament believers. He's right near the, 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 the church there. Uh, and he, he's saying here, you New Testament believers, I'm satisfied about you. 
I know you, I know that you are able, you're, you're full of goodness by God's grace, and you're filled with all knowledge by God's grace, and you are able to instruct one another. In Union Baptist Church, I would say to you all, if you're believers here, you know the Word of God, you are able, you are equipped, you have everything that you need in order to be able to instruct one another, to admonish one another. J. Adams again says in both Colossians and Romans then, Paul pictures Christians meeting in neuthetic confrontation. That, that word is uh, a word that's sometimes used to talk about neuthetic counseling, uh, but it's the word that comes from this word admonish. So Paul pictures Christians meeting in neuthetic confrontation as normal everyday activity. He was sure the Christians in Rome were able to do so because they were filled with knowledge and goodness. These qualities equipped them to confront one another neuthetically. This is a work in which all of God's people may participate. And I would say more than may participate, we are called by the authority of God's word, we are commanded to participate in this activity. And, and if we are making disciples, this is part of it, right? This is part of the work. Not only sharing the gospel with the lost, but, but for those who are already converted, helping them be conformed to the image of Christ. Admonition is essential for growth. Admonition is essential for growth. This, this is why it's so important. This is why it's so important, because if we're going to grow in the image of Christ, this work of admonition, teaching and instruction, warning, this is essential, an essential part of the growth. It's essential, first of all, because it's essential to all learning processes, isn't it? Have you ever learned anything difficult that didn't take some correction? Have you, you know, you think people go to medical school and, and do surgery, learn to do surgery, and they just never make a mistake? They never have to have an instructor say, you know, you did that wrong, and let's learn how to do it the right way. Teachers, we've got school teachers here, we've got school teachers in the church, you know, they don't just show up and just, you know, deliver the message. Here's how you do physics. Here, here, here is how you do algebra and geometry. Now, I've delivered that to you, and you, you should be good. Now, you know, you know how to do it. Now, there's teaching, but, but isn't there always correction as part of the learning process? So you give them the worksheet, and they do the worksheet, and they get a few of them right and a few of them wrong. And you go back, and what do you do? If you're a good teacher, you go back and you instruct them. No, this wasn't right. Do, do you see why that was wrong? Do you see here, you have to follow these steps out in, in this equation, and you didn't follow all the steps. You tried to skip this step, and so now that's why you got the wrong answer here, right? Or you didn't transpose your signs, or what, whatever the problem is. There's, there's correction that happens. Well, do you think that we're going to be able to learn what it means to become like Jesus and actually live that out without having any instruction, without having any correction? It's not going to happen. There, there's nothing, even basic and, and simple things that we learn, we learn through this process of instruction, but then also correction. And if that's true, and relatively simple tasks that we learn in everyday life, how much more is it true of our attempt to become like Jesus? Listen again to the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So, so Jesus here isn't saying, just go impart a lot of knowledge to them so that they'll have it up here. He's, he's calling us to help people take the teaching of Christ and observe it, to, to live it out in, in their everyday life. Is that going to happen, you think, apart from some process of teaching and instruction, but then also some correction? I, I don't think so. We're talking about observing, doing, living out everything that Jesus has commanded us second this is essential because becoming like jesus is a particularly difficult challenge remember the call to discipleship uh it isn't said hey come and take a few facts and put them into your brain and 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 a few positive statements and and then live the rest of your life no the call to discipleship is for you to come and take up your cross daily and follow Christ. That, that's going to require not only some teaching and some instruction, but also some confrontation, also some correction. 
It's a matter of crucifying your, daily, your flesh daily, following the Spirit to put to death the deeds of your body. Becoming like Jesus is a difficult process that in many ways is directly opposed to your own desires. We talked about that a few weeks ago when we talked about what it means to crucify yourself. It means take all of these desires that are innate to you, that are inborn, that, that seem natural to you, and put them to death so that you can come and follow Christ. Well, well again, if, if these desires are so deeply rooted in our own hearts, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that we're going to just be able to really easily, on our own, without any help, without any teaching, without any confrontation, just put away our own desires and live for Christ. Like, that isn't going to happen. That, that it's, it's what we're called to do is antithetical to what we feel like doing so many times. What we're called to do is antithetical to, to what we feel like doing so often. And so we need the encouragement. We need teaching and instruction, but we also need correction. We, we need people who can come along beside us and say, I, I think you might be getting this wrong here. I, I think you're seeing this unclearly. This is what it looks like to follow Christ. This is the way. This is the path, the, the narrow path that leads to life. And, and you've charted off course here a bit. We need that it's essential for our growth in christ weak and immature and ineffective christians and, and churches are in part then the product of no accountability no correction and no admonition paul said we admonish everyone so that we may present them mature in christ and so if we're not seeing maturity in christ and, and those who claim to be his followers, then we can assume that maybe we're missing the process here, right? He's saying there's a process, teaching and admonishing, that leads to a result that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So if we're not getting the result, what, what may we be missing? The right process, right? Just in the same way, that math problem, right? You've got to do the right process to get the right answer. And, and so it is in, in the life of the church. If we're seeing weak and immature uh, Christians and we're seeing people that aren't being conformed to the image of Christ, the problem may be that we're missing, we're missing this key ingredient, this teaching and this, this admonition. If we never receive correction, we will not change, or at least not in the measure that we ought. If, if I reject accountability and refuse to be corrected, I will not become like Jesus in some ways. So one of the vital aspects of a, of a church community is that we effectively, uh, is, is effectively growing disciples of Jesus, is that we are willing both to be corrected and to give correction. So let me, let me just challenge a, a few unbiblical mindsets then, or a few mindsets that we've got to lay aside. If we're going to get into this uh, uh, admonishing and teaching, and we're going to live in community for the glory of God by, by growing disciples of Jesus Christ, the, the first wrong mindset is, it's none of your business, or it's not my business. The reason the church is not reflecting Jesus is because we have adopted, far too many of us, have adopted an anti-biblical mindset which says that, that's really none of my business, and, and that's not my job. I don't, I don't want to get involved in anybody's life in that way, or I don't want others to be involved in my life in that way. But, but clearly, if the command of God from Scripture is that we admonish one another, then we must recognize that that mindset is an unbiblical mindset. It's antithetical to what God has called us to do. And so we at least have to start it doesn't end there, but we've got at least got to start with recognizing I'm wrong here. The Word of God is correct. And, and it might be challenging for me to accept that. It might be challenging me for, to, for, for me to live that out. But I've got to at least begin with recognizing my thinking is out of step with Scripture. And then the second unbiblical mindset is, is sort of a wrong view of love. A wrong view of love. We have also adopted a mindset that says that loving, that the loving thing is always to affirm someone in whatever decision or course of life they choose. So, so whatever it is, whatever they're doing, we're called to be like Jesus. We're called to love, which means that we just unconditionally affirm them in whatever they choose. Well, I don't know if you've ever read your New Testament and ever read the Jesus that is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and 
and then explicated in the rest of the New Testament. But I'm here to tell you that he isn't a Jesus who always just says, sure, go do whatever you want to do. Like, like if you've ever read even one page of the Gospels, you would see that that is not the Jesus of the New Testament. It is not a Jesus of unconditional acceptance, however you choose to live your life. It is a Jesus who calls you to change. It is a Jesus who calls you to sacrifice your life, to lay it down on the cross daily so that you can follow Him. And so, it's a wrong view of love to think that the loving thing is just to say whatever they're doing is, is good. We need to recognize then that admonition requires a higher priority than our personal comfort. Holiness is more important, is greater than happiness. Your holiness, in God's estimation, your holiness is greater than your happiness. Now, praise God that, that joy, true joy, ultimately comes through living a life of holiness. But, but sometimes the pathway of holiness, the pathway of becoming like Jesus Christ, is a pathway that involves some temporary discomfort. But God is more concerned about you that you become like Jesus than that you are just happy in this life. This all comes back then to the issue of growth and change. Are you truly committed to glorifying God by becoming like Jesus? That's our mission statement. And I said we want that to not just be something we put on the wall, but something that's true in the life of this church, that we exist for the glory of God and, and we glorify God most fully by becoming like Jesus and helping other people become like Jesus. So if you're committed to change and grow in order to become like Jesus, it will necessarily involve you in receiving some correction. If you are committing to helping others grow and change, it will necessarily involve you in giving some correction. And we recoil sometimes from accountability. Really, I've seen this so often, we, we, we recoil from that level of accountability until we get to that moment of, of desperation. I've seen so many who, who, you know, would resist sort of teaching and instruction on something like marriage, and then, then the marriage is about to fall apart, and, and now, they're, now they're willing, now, now they're ready. It's the same way sometimes people are about their health. You know, they can hear all these health warnings about eating a healthy diet and so on and so on, uh, until, and they just ignore all of it uh, until they have a heart attack, right? Now, now I've got to start eating healthy. Right? And so often our sinfulness makes us dull. It makes us slow to want accountability when, when we would be ready for it. But, but we, we often have to wait till that moment of crisis. And we shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. But so often that is the way that is true in, in our lives. Unfortunately, it often takes some sort of crisis to make us ready to want accountability, to make us ready to want to, to change. But if we were wise, we wouldn't wait till that moment right? If we were wise, we wouldn't wait till God brings his hand of discipline to, to touch on our lives and say, change. You need to change. We, we would be wise to hear the word of God and, and respond to the conviction uh, of God's spirit in our lives and be willing to change and receive some accountability now. Let me say this, admonition must be done in the right way. Admonition must be done in, in the right way. And, and by this, first of all, I'd say it must be done with love. This must be done in love. If it comes from pride, if it comes from arrogance, if it comes from a desire for power or to control others or, or really any other motivation, this work of confronting and, and counseling in this way will become a very dark and a very ugly practice. This means... Of this means of, of growing up into Christ is really what we might call speaking the truth, but speaking the truth in love. That's what Paul says in, in Ephesians 4.15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. How do we grow up into Christ? Through the truth. But what, how should that truth come? It should come in love. Right? And we can never divorce those two things. If we're just truth and we come and beat somebody over the head, there's no grace, there's, there's no affection, there's no true concern for them. It's just like, I'm right and you're wrong and I'm going to tell you about it. That's, that's not the right way. That is unloving, it's unbiblical, and it is not like Christ. Truth must come with love. Speaking the truth 
in love, it must always then come with the glory of God in mind, but also with the good of the individual. We must be concerned for their good, not just to look right, not, not to be able to air our self-righteousness, but truly with a concern for others. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.14, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. So I talked earlier about how we admonish our children. Do, do we admonish our children out of anger and, and, and just with no concern for their well-being? Why do we admonish them? If you're a loving, good parent, you admonish them, and you do admonish them, but you do it in a particular way. You do it with a heart full of love for them because you want their good. You want what is absolutely best for your children. And Paul says, that's the way I admonish. I admonish with a heart full of love, like, like, like a father to his children. And that's how we ought to admonish one another. It can never be divorced from love. This means that one thing, we, we, we must avoid being a busybody. We must avoid being a busybody. Second Timothy or Second Thessalonians 3.11 says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. The fact that we are encouraged to be involved in each other's lives doesn't mean that, that we should just be entangled in every detail of their life all the time. That's not a healthy environment, and we need to stray away from that. We're not to be gossips. Uh, we're, we're not to be private investigators going in and trying to dig through their closet, so to speak, to find what dirt we can find. No, no, no. But as God exposes sin in the life of believers, we are to be involved. We are to teach. We are to uh, admonish. And then not only love, but I would say this, we need humility. Humility is required both in giving and receiving admonition. It's, it's got to be required on both ends. In the giving of admonition or correction, you cannot do this as if you have already arrived. You can't do this as if you are perfect and you're here to set everybody else straight. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, just leave them alone. That's their business. It doesn't have anything to do with you. Just mind your own business. That's what Paul says, Galatians 6.1. Nope. It's not what he says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You say, you hear the humility there? Watch yourself. You, you think you're going to go help correct somebody else? You need to do that. If they fall into sin, you need to go and try to restore them, but you better do it First of all, with gentleness, a spirit of love, but also with a spirit of humility. You watch yourself because you recognize I'm a sinner just like that person. And I, I'm no different in some ways other than that in the moment presently, I'm on this side and not on that side. And so as I go to them, I need to go to them with humility, keeping watch on myself, lest I too be tempted in, in the same way. I think this spirit keeps us away from the judgmentalism that Jesus warns us against. And we need to avoid that. But humility is also required on the receiving end. The Bible teaches that, that a wise person will receive correction while a fool will not. And I, I've got a long list. We won't read these all. But, but Proverbs 12, 15. Just look at Proverbs about receiving correction, about receiving instruction. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. I don't need anybody to tell me no. But, but a wise man listens to advice. If you're a wise person, you will invite people into your lives who will correct you. And if you are resistant to correction, if you are resistant to having anybody else speak into your life, it is not a sign of maturity or independence or wisdom. It is a sign of folly. Wisdom listens and receives corrections. Proverbs, Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. You have to be willing to be taught and, and corrected. It's a humbling thing. I've been there. I, I've been there even as a pastor. There have been moments where people have, have corrected me. And, and I know the innate response that all of us have. Mind your own business. This is me. Or no, you're not right. You're not seeing this clearly. 
what, what you've said isn't true. And so we just automatically sort of recoil and we come out, we bring out our excuses and we try to twist things to make it look. And, and we can always, almost always point to something that this person's done wrong or they've been wrong in the way that they've tried to do it. And, and, and that's in my own heart too, and I know it. But if we're going to change, we need to be those who humble ourselves and, and are ready to say, okay, this person that's correcting me isn't perfect and maybe they haven't even corrected me perfectly but but they're seeking in a spirit of love and humility to help me become more like Jesus and I want to live for the glory of God more than I want life itself and if that means that I need to be corrected by other sinful people then bring it on that's what we're called to do as we close this morning let me ask you a few application questions are you humble enough for someone to speak into the sensitive areas of your life and offer counsel and instruction? When was the last time someone was able to say to you, friend, I think you were wrong about that without you becoming angry or isolating yourself from that person? When was, it might even be your spouse, it might be your mother, it might be your father, it might be a child, but when was the last time you were able to receive that and learn from it and grow and say, you know, you're right about that? When was the last time you changed something in your life as a result of a friend or a loved one sort of lovingly challenging you? Who is there in your life? Examine, think about it. Who is there in your life who has the freedom to be able to say hard things to you? Is there anybody that you've given that right to? Is there anybody in that space in your life who can say hard things to you? There needs to be if you're going to become like Christ. And that person needs to be a believer who's, who wants to glorify God and wants to help you become like Jesus. Are, are you committed to glorifying God by becoming like Jesus? Do, do you think you can get there without being challenged by the help of others? That is a proud thing to think I don't need anyone else. It, it is really a, a heart of sin that, that would say I don't need anyone else to help me become like Jesus. God has founded this whole institution called the New Testament Church in his infinite wisdom and he said we need this I think God knows better than than we know so are you committed to glorifying God by becoming like Jesus do you think you can get there without being challenged and helped by others are you involved in helping others are, are you involved in this work of, of helping others? So not only receiving correction, but then sometimes giving admonition, giving correction. Are you willing to do the hard work of providing watch care that Hebrews 12 says that we are to do, watch over one another? Are, are you willing to do the hard work of watch care for other believers and to admonish them when needed? You know, sometimes going back to this, we, we say, well, I love people too much to want to wanna correct them and, and be like that. The reality is that's not true. The, the reality is you love yourself too much to do that. Because I'm going to tell you as a pastor who sometimes is involved in, in providing correction and I've received it, it's never easy on either end. It's not something that, that a godly person delights in to go around correcting. It's something that is often misunderstood. It's something that can be mislabeled. It gets you involved in all kinds of messy situations. And I think the true reason many of us don't want to be involved in this kind of work is because I don't want to mess with you that much. In fact, I don't love you enough to care for your soul, to care that you become like Jesus Christ, which is the most important thing in your life. And I don't want to do that. That's too hard. So are you committed to doing the hard work of providing watch care for other believers and to admonish them when needed? Are you willing to bear the scorn that may come by being misunderstood as, as unjudgmental or unchristlike or judgmental or unchristlike? Because that often happens. So let me let me just encourage you with two things this morning. First, if you are not yet a believer here this morning. Um, if you're not living for the glory of God, I, I want to encourage you to repent. If you're a believer here, your goal should be to live for the glory of God. But if you're an unbeliever here, you've been living your life for your own glory. You've been living your life for whatever you want to do. Uh, and, and you were created to glorify God. And you need to repent this morning of the fact that you have neglected the greatest purpose that God put you, for, put you here for, which is to glorify God. 
Him. And I would encourage you to come to Christ, to believe in Christ. God will forgive you through Jesus Christ. So put your faith and your trust in Him this morning and cry out to Him for forgiveness. Second, believers, I would ask you to recommit to this purpose of glorifying God in your life. Really set this center stage because I, I got to be honest, I, I haven't been living this way. And many of us, I think it, it's too easy for us to get diverted onto other purposes in our life. We, we need to constantly come back and say, I exist for the glory of God. So let me encourage you believers here this morning, recommit to this purpose of glorifying God and re-engage in this process of discipleship. So as we sort of divert our attention from glorifying God, one of the things that so often happens is we disengage from the process of discipleship. We pull back from church, we pull back from, from relationships that, that will help confront us and will help encourage us to become more like Jesus Christ. We isolate ourselves over here, but if you want to, if you want to recommit to that purpose of glorifying God, one of the chief ways you need to do, things you need to do, is re-engage in this process of discipleship. If you want to become like Christ, you need to be discipled. If you want to become like Christ, you need to be discipling other people. So let me encourage you with that this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we pray and we just simply confess, Lord, the, the reality is for myself, I, I have not been living uh, as I ought for your glory in every way as a preeminent desire of my heart. God, I pray that you would forgive me in this, and I pray that you would forgive us as, as a church. Lord, we are so easily distracted, so easily pulled away to, to many other things, and we need your grace. We're, we're thankful, Lord, that we're not saved by our good works. We're not saved by being the perfect Christian. We're saved by Christ himself, and, and we just come to you this morning just owning our sin and, and crying out to you uh, as the tax collector did in Luke 18, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Would you be merciful to us? But God, we, we recognize that in confessing our sin and asking for forgiveness, we don't want to stay here. We want to grow. We, we want to become more like Christ. We want to be sanctified. And we pray that you would do this work in our lives. We pray that you would help us recommit our lives to be for your glory above everything else preeminently. And we pray for those who have disengaged. We pray that you would help them re-engage in the process of discipleship. Help them not isolate themselves and pull away from the, the means of grace that you've given to them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.